Uh, once again, we gather around the uh, Swing Thoughts Studios. Coach Tim is here, along with Golf Spiritual Leader. That's right. It's a big deal. GSL. <laughs> our, uh, our guest today is already laughing because he, he thinks it's funny that I call myself Golf Spiritual Leader. And, uh, and he calls me Golf Spiritual Leader now, which I, uh, I, I feel good about. He just calls you Howard. Uh, sometimes, if I let him know. Uh, we'll get to our guest in a second, but first let's uh, say hi to everyone. Uh, good to have you with us, as always, even though... Officially, the uh, 2022, you know, Swing Thoughts schedule is uh, is done. We're now every couple of weeks, and we'll be with you, you know, all through the winter and uh, talking about golf and lots of stuff still to uh, discuss. Uh, I well, actually, later on the show, we'll talk about the fact that I got to drop in again on one of your Quiet Mind sessions. That's always cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was awesome to see yeah. you there. Well, I was feeling. Yeah, like I, I, I had a sense you're kind of following us around, but I know you because <laughs> you're the no. GSL. Yeah. I, I always feel it happens. You're sitting there with all your guys, and I feel like I'm like I come along like some like the court jester and juggling a few things. Hey, everybody! I say a couple of dumb things and I move on. Uh, this program is brought to you by uh, JW Apparel, Neuropeak Pro, and of course our good friends at TaylorMade. On uh, Monday, I was playing with our guest, and every time I'd hit a good drive, he'd be like, oh, carbon wood, oh, twist-face technology. Ooh. That's right. Oh, yeah. He was chirping me, but you know what? With good reason, because if you're using uh, the stealth driver, uh, you are gaining on your uh, competition. It's used by players like Dustin Johnson, Rory McIlroy, Colin Morikawa, Tim O'Connor, GSL. If you need to learn more, you can... Visit TaylorMadeGolf.ca and uh, bang, yeah. If you're uh, if you're okay, I'll get right to introducing our guest today. Hundred percent. He's an interesting character that I've known since 1997. It had taken me three tries to finally qualify for the Ontario Amateur, and uh, I was excited. I, I qualified for it. I made the cut. I finished, uh, I think, 41st, and it was a big deal for me. I was 37 at the time, and the young fellow that won that tournament was a four-time All-American in one of the most dominant eras in Columbus State University golf. He um, was the 96-97 NCAA Division II National Freshman of the Year. He helped uh, CSU to the 1997 National Championships and nearly captured an individual National Championship in 1999 when he finished runner-up. He was a member of the 1998 Peach Bell Conference Championship winning team and individually finished in the top five at all the four Peach Bell Conference Championships he competed in. He is in the Columbus State University Cougars Hall of Fame, and now he just dreams of Cougars. He is the... Uh, <laughs> and now I feel so inadequate. <laughs> oh, wait, there's more. Uh, after winning the 1997 Ontario Amateur, he turned professional and for four years competed on what is now the Corn Ferry Tour and, uh, and had a start on the PGA Tour in the 2001 Canadian Open. But most recently, his golf career took a turn that he never expected and was paired with GSL... In the 2022 Ontario Better Ball, 
Please welcome my friend John Jury. Hello, Jonathan. Morning, Howard. Thank you for the great introduction. You uh, really did some homework. Not really. <laughs> you know, literally five minutes before this thing started, I went, I wonder if I should look up something about John. And I was really impressed that you were actually in the CSU Hall of Fame, son. That's brand new. That was uh, just over a year ago we went down for that. And uh, yeah, it was quite a humbling experience, to be honest with you, that the school would honor me in that. It was it's great. Usually means they want money too, right? So, oh, is that part of the fundraising? Well, yeah, way to hook you in. I want to be, before we talk about your your peak experience on Monday playing with uh, somebody like myself. Um, I want to go back to uh, the time before I met you. Like this, this sort of shows like you know you were a young guy. You were you know playing at a at a big school. You were doing well at a national level. I guess when did you decide to turn pro? Or when, you know, actually, and also, when did you think, at what stage of your life did you think, hey, I could do this, and it was a possibility? Uh, good question. I think I always wanted to uh, turn pro probably when I was 13 or 14, but knew I didn't have the game. And college was kind of the insertion I needed to kind of give me the, the push up to make it happen. Uh, you know, I had a great college career. A uh, good amateur career, but my junior career wasn't very good. So I, I think it was worth the try. Um, and I, I do think I could have done a lot better in my pro career. Uh, I didn't spend enough time at it. I should, probably should have hung out for a little more, you know, a couple more years because it really is an endurance test. So who stays out there the longest? Um, you know, the guys I grew up with, you see on tour, uh, you know, we played a lot of college golf with these guys. And I'm not saying, like I said, you're saying I beat them every day, but. Well, I no, but tell college. us who were some of the guys, because I, I was going to look that up. Who were yeah. some of the guys yeah. that you were playing against in your halcyon days as a, as a university athlete? Yeah. So a lot of these guys, you, I mean, I know you guys will, will know these guys, but a lot of maybe your audience might not, but Canadian um, David Hearn, we grew up very close together. Mm-hmm. Um, um, then on the PJ tour, um, uh, Zach Johnson, uh, Luke Donald, um, Matt Kuchar. We played a lot with Matt Kuchar. My school was in Georgia and we were a D two school, but we were, we were ranked in the, in the D one program. Cause we played all D one teams all the time. So I got to play with Kuchar lots and Bryce Mulder and, um, who else was there? Um, uh, I mean, all those are the, the main guys I can think of right now, but there was a lot of guys, major champions and we always knew we could do it, but did we have all the confidence to continue it on and, and turning pro was a, it's a different game. I went from, you know, being in the top five or winning most of the events I played in to, you know, barely making the cut. And I think I missed my first three or four cuts on tour. And it was, it was a demoralizing thing. And, you know, it's what you guys talk about. I love it because it's such a mental part of the game. Uh, there's so many people that have the ability. And I truly, truly think it was an endurance test to stay out there the longest and ride that confident wave. And I didn't have it. What did you do for support in those days? Did you have a, a coach that you worked with that you could talk about the things that you were experiencing and, you know, the emotions you were going through? Absolutely. So we had, um, we had, uh, Henry Brunton was my golf coach. Right. I know Henry. And, oh yeah. Yeah. Henry's the greatest. I love Henry. Um, he would touch on the mental side and he was good with it, but we didn't really have a sports psychologist that we worked at the time. That was, that's 
that's 20 years ago or right. 25 years ago, right? Yeah. You know, it's funny that you say it's an endurance test because for about four years, I lived in Los Angeles. I was doing stand up and I worked with a lot of people that are now famous, a couple in particular. And uh, when I sort of, I guess, turned professional, I, I, what I realized in hindsight was some of the guys that I was a peer of, they just hung around long enough and that's really what it is. Can you stick it out for 10 years till you finally, you know, and certainly in stand up till you finally get comfortable enough and know how it works. And I wonder, was that the same for you? And do you feel sometimes that maybe you packed it in a little bit early? I did. I, I do feel that I don't regret packing in early, but I do feel that I probably should have stuck it a little longer, but financially it was difficult. It's very, very expensive to play the Canadian tour. Again, we'd start on the West coast, work our way driving everywhere, or even if flying, it's just very expensive. And you're not playing for much money. Mm-hmm. So it was hard to gather that money. And, uh, you know, it, I'll give you an example. I played with Justin Rose two weeks before he finished second place in the British open as a, I think he was 17. Yeah. If you're and then was that 1997 or, uh, no, it was before that. Oh, okay. Right, right, right. And we were playing, it was a, it was for the, uh, for team Canada. We played an event. I want to say, I don't want to say Peru, but maybe Costa Rica or something like that. We played together and, uh, just watching him. You didn't know him at the time. And then three weeks later, he finishes in the top, like finishes second. So the reassurance is there that you can do it. You see the game. It's just you have all the shots, you hit the putts. It's just something between those six inches in your ears that are that's the difference. You got to believe in yourself. And I think I, I, money was one, but I think that was one of the determinations to stop me believing in myself was that, hey, uh, do I want to fundraise to go back out here or do I want to just live a normal life? Was prob- Was part of the issue that you go from this kind of secure amateur existence you talked about what you're on team canada right yep so i guess it was probably called the rcga back in those days and they're paying for your flights and your food and all and your apparel and all that stuff and then you go pro (laughs) and then whoa suddenly all that falls away and you gotta hold yourself up that that's a tough spot that they've golf canada's done um I haven't researched enough to know, but they've they've tried to close that gap. But that is, I've heard that story over and over again. You go from this nice, secure amateur thing where you know all you have to do is show up for your flight, and all of a sudden you got to pay. Yeah, that would that prey on your mind hugely. Yeah, and they they really I don't want to use the word coddling, but they they yeah. kind of really helped me out. They I I think I played in six national events for Canada all over the world. And you felt like on top of the world. That was confidence builder there. And you're right. We show up for flights. There's a ceremony this night, then a nice dinner that night. And, you know, it's it's not what you're eating, where you're going. It's, uh, hey, what time do we got to get picked up for our tournament tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Um, definitely, you're bang on there. Too. So when you made the transition to professional golf, did you have a, a time frame in, in mind? Like, I'm going to give it five years or I have this amount of money. And uh, and I, I had written down this question, and it's sort of going to relate. And maybe if you could also talk a little bit about, because our audience, you know, we haven't had, it's strange, we've been doing this show for seven years, and we haven't had that many 
um, players on the show. We've had Zokal and we've had, you know, Foley's been on. But having the perspective of somebody that was an amateur, turned professional, then got back into the amateur world, just give us some perspective of, A, did you have a time frame? And B, maybe talk a little bit about what we wouldn't know the difference between the professional game and the amateur game. Good questions. Um, so we, I did have a time frame, uh, and it was a financial time frame. And I, in my mind, I wanted to play forever. But I thought the when we we're setting up our investors and stuff, we talked about doing a three to a five year plan. And then from there, we thought that was enough time to at least embark not on the Canadian tour, but make it somewhere else, buy.com or continue on to somewhere closer. But when the money ran out, again, it was, it was a tough, a tough uh, transition. So, um, so I hung out for another six or seven months. I played the South American tour just to see if I can uh, get it going. And actually I got a good story about that. Jason Duffner, I played with uh, one of the events out there. This is before he, I think he won the U S open, but before yeah, that, much before that, no, you won the PGA. Won event out, yeah. There you go. Yeah. He won an event on the South American tour, I think by 18 shots in a four round event. And where guys weren't shooting under par, he just, he blew the field away. And there's a lot of good stories I can get into that South American tour. They'd pay you cash on the bus the next Monday as you're going to the next spot. So you're wow. in El Salvador <laughs> and you've got, you got 2,500 U.S. funds in your back pocket. And, you know, sad cases like your caddy's wearing shoes with holes in it, stuff like that. Like it, anyways, but that was a great tour. And, and once I came out of there, I realized, hey, like these guys really have it. I didn't have it on the South American tour. We went with John Mills and Derek Gillespie travel with me for those. I think we we're gone for six events or so. Fast forward to, you know, I started a family and it came out of professional golf and always had the hope to go back. Thought this is only a one year pause or a two year pause. I'm going to go back. But we all know you get caught up in everyday life. And, and now financially it's a different thing. You got to sustain to have a house and, you know, raise a family and such. So you go to work. Um, I probably played for the next 12 to 14 years. I maybe played 10 rounds a year. And, uh, you know, actually I was a member of blue Springs, but I would never play. Um, and then I was a member of Galt for a handful of years. And then, uh, um, I got remarried in 2015 and said, you know what, I'm going back to golfing. And uh, so I joined Westmount and now I don't play a lot of competitive golf, but, you know, I played the last four mid ams, last couple amateurs. Um, and it, it's fun to get back as you probably see on Monday, Howard, I, I had a great time and that's how I want the golf to be. Mm-hmm. I love the competitive aspect of it, uh, but the biggest difference between amateur golf and pro golf is, you're stepping into a field with 150 players, no matter what amateur professional, but on the professional side, 150, of those guys can win that event. And on the amateur side, and I'm not meaning any disrespect. No, I know what you're going to say. There's only 20 guys that can win. Mm -hmm. It's a big difference. So you have a rough day. You shoot even par or one over on a professional event. The field's lapped you. You might as well start preparing for next week. Mm -hmm. But an amateur event, you know, throw a 66, 65 in, you, you can get back in the field, into the mix. That's not going to happen on the PGA Tour. So that's the biggest thing. The depth was probably the hardest thing to understand. Uh, and a lot of people still, maybe that's when I, when I coach or when I'm talking to younger guys that are talking about turning pro, I go, guys, 
go right to try and go right to the PGA tour, try and Monday qualify, get into an event, see what it looks like. Because if you finish well in that event, your career is off. You're good. You're, you're going to be able to, you know, top 10 it to the next week or win to get a two year exemption. Corey That's Connors. Corey Connors. That's exactly what it is. I, I'm not trying to disrespect, uh, you know, some of the mini tours, but those guys will spend a lifetime banging out for $2,000. And it's, it's not about the money. It's about your long-term career. Now, if I can ask another question, Tim, so you're, I, uh, I asked you on Monday, I'm 62 and you're like 46, 47. Yeah. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah. Well, listen, when you're our, when, O'Connor and I are 130 years old, you know, we don't, we, I said to you, you know, we call 46 year olds kid, but yeah, exactly. um, my, my question is, and I'm sure this is not the first person to ask you, have you given any thought to, you know, turning 50 and trying again? Absolutely. I have. Um, uh, I mean, there's a lot of factors I've got to play into whether or not I do it or not. Um, but I would love to give it a crack. And I think as long as I stay healthy, which I, Howard, you know, I don't look too healthy. Um, I call myself short and fat, but uh, I, the swing's still there. I hit the shots. Um, mentally, I think I'm stronger than I used to be. But again, it takes a dedication. You got to commit yourself. I can't play my two days a week, uh, you know, playing around with the buddies at West Mountain, think that I can then turn pro tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I'm getting closer to the 50 and I don't even understand the qualifying application of that. Like, cause I know there's very few spots on this, on the champions tour. Um, so that's another, you got to look into that and see, but I would love to, you're, mm-hmm. you're bang on Howard. I'd love to. Well, John, one of the things I want to um, explore with you before it gets too far away and I lose the opportunity would be, you talked about, the, the time it takes. So you went on the tour and you felt you, you left a bit early. And I'm, I'm searching here for, is there a nugget for our listeners to get about how damn difficult this game is and how long it takes to build skill from experience and all these things. And this just it's just, I mean, as humans, we're really slow at this change game. And how hard it takes. I mean, just speak to that in terms of, I mean, we live in a quick fix culture. You know, people see on YouTube or Instagram or something, oh, I can cure my slice or whatever by doing this. But it just talk to us about that, how long it takes to develop skill in golf. It, it's a long time because it's not just a mechanical thing. Like you, you can kind of get your swing in shape uh, with a coach or, again, watching YouTube to fix all your your flaws, but there is that mental side of it. And, and everyone doesn't want to, doesn't want to think of that as oh, mechanically guys walk out to the range and they're pulling driver right off the bat just to warm up. Well, it takes years and years. And, you know, when I was on tour, like we would, we would hit balls for three or four hours a day, try and play around a round of golf and then putt and chip for another two or three hours. Like, it was a full-time job. Mm-hmm. And again, that was before fitness was a part of it. Now fitness is a part of it. Those guys are in the gym two or three hours a day. So now all those elements have to come into effect. A lot of people don't see it. I know they talk about it. Rory's got a game plan where he goes into the gym at 5 a.m., even in tournament rounds. and But they're not touching on what happens every single day. And uh, we're talking about golf and physical aspect, but they're also the mental side that they work on. And I'm the farthest away from that compared to what a PGA tour pro or a champions tour pro is. And 
Tim, you're right on it. It's so much and it's hard to explain how much because, you know, most of your listeners are probably a nine to five or they work a job. When you're a tour player, it doesn't stop after five o'clock. It continues on. If you want to be the Phil Mickelson's, the Dustin Johnson's, the Rory's, it continues well onto that. There is no Mm -hmm. days off for these guys. Well, John, what about the... You know, uh, the, the woman who's a 24 handicapper and she wants to be a, na- a 19, the guy who's a 15 wants to be a 9 or, or whatever. What are the mental skills that you think that they need to develop to make that that move? And how much time does it take? Yeah, I mean, 24 to a 9. I, I, someone I, said meant, I meant 19. <laughs> or 19. So a lot of people said that you can really comfortably only drop, I think, three and then again, this is someone maybe said this to me years ago, three handicap per year, three strokes a year. Um, and that's, you know, doing something different than you did the year before. It's not like you can do the same thing and continue to drop your handicap. There's going to be a time where you're, you're going to level out. And what you have to understand is your mind changes as you're dropping. You're not, you got to stop thinking like a 19 handicap. You got to start thinking like a 16 handicap this year. Next year, you got to start thinking like a 13 handicap. And that's a big aspect. I talk to a lot of people about that. Um, you know, a lot of guys I play with, you know, hey, I want to become a better golfer. Well, you got to start thinking like a better golfer and playing more, practicing more, all those things. But you have to start thinking when, you know, there's a lot of times you stand up on a par four and it might be tight or water. You're just like, oh, I just have to hit the fairway. Well, if you're a, a three or four handicap, that's not what you're thinking anymore. You're thinking, I got to get it in this spot here so I have a chance to get it close to make birdie. So the, it's it's so long of a process. And we always worry about the mechanical part. We got to worry about how am I thinking compared to what I was mm-hmm. comparing. You know, when and we've had this discussion and I've been asked, you know, like, I've never met anyone that didn't play golf as a kid that got to scratch. Lots of guys start in later in life. They, they do it for business. And so it's kind of unreasonable. I've said that to a few people. You want to be a scratch golfer, quit your job. You know, I mean, it's, it's not really possible unless you started as a kid. But improvements are possible. And I like what you said about changing the way you think about the game can also help lower your scores. And, of course, we've done seven years worth of shows about changing the way you think. But yet, you know... The game itself is so different day to day, even if your mechanics are good. And I wanted to talk a little bit before we let you go to talk about like, you know, you and I, I always knew who you were because my first amateur where I was thrilled to finish, you know, make the cut, had a decent tournament for me. You know, you won that tournament. And so I'd always known who you were, and I was I always thought it was cool that you turned pro. But I always thought it was cool that you're also a good guy. You know, you're funny, you're smart, you're self-referential, you're self-deprecating. Do you think and this is a? T- I'm going to ask you a tough question. Do you think you're affable? Because you are. You're an affable fellow. Do you think that might have held you back in terms of, you know? maybe being more successful. And I say this respectfully because we all know pros and they're very self-absorbed. They're very self. It's all about them. Is that a fair question? It is. And I, I've never thought of that, but maybe I should be a little more self-absorbed. You know, that's, it's, it's right. I can start that. I don't know if anybody. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, it's too late. John. <laughs> it's a great idea. You're too nice a guy. 
Hey, hon, I'm going to try out being more selfish. Yeah. Good luck with that. Every good player. But it's true. We all know that, like, the best players that, and the, again, I've met tour players. They're very, you yeah. know, it's they're very myopic in their focus. Yeah. No, you're right. And uh, no, you could be right. I never even thought of that angle, you know, that. And again, I'm not the nicest guy. A lot of people hate me. Don't worry. That's not true. Um, there's a long list. No. <laughs> but, you know, you're, you're probably right. Uh, it could be. It could be a very good element of it. Well, it was, it was interesting. We had uh, Robert Dameron on. Um, we've had him on a couple times. And it's wonderful to get his insights about, like yourself, being a professional. And he made the point that he thought Phil Mickelson would have won a lot more events if he hated losing the way Justin Thomas hates losing. I think, is that part of what you're getting at, Howard? A little bit? Yeah, I mean, they're all driven. I mean, not, not, and again, I don't know. I've, I've played golf with John on Monday, and I can tell you it was a great experience. But I don't know what John was like. He's still here, by the way. I don't know what John was like um, in the nineteen late 1990s. But, you know, there is something about guys that, you know, that are driven to the point where they can't have friends and family and it's all about their golf. And, and again, I put that to you because, you know, you, you reached a pretty high, the higher level than most people could ever imagine. Um, but there's something about those guys that kind of get past that. And may, maybe that is, maybe it's a, it's one of those things I know where what you're saying, cause yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of, and I, I use the word arrogance maybe is what it is. These guys have, and it is selfishness. And I, I you know, hey, I'm not the friendliest guy. I'm not the nice guy. I had the, I, I still have the urge to win. Like even Monday, it ate me up inside that we, you know, we made a nice double on the uh, seventh or eighth hole, whatever it was. Yeah, it was pretty gross. It was pretty gross. Yeah. I saw the whole thing. Hey, I whiffed one. Yes. You, you guys didn't get to see Oh, that. no, no. That's right. I had your card. Like, again, this guy played on the PGA Tour, the Web.com, the Canadian Tour. And when I said to him, what'd you have there? Because we thought you made five. And when you said seven, me and Fitz looked around and went, what did we miss? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> on my knees, whiffing one under the tree, he missed. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he had one of those. Oh, yeah, but God. to be fair, we'll talk about it. You got to see that. You got to witness the carnage of our team melting down on the back nine. That was awesome. <laughs> That was something else. The three footer oh. I missed was followed by the two and a half footer I missed, which was followed by his four footer that he missed. It was quite something. Um, yeah. But I, I want to talk a little bit about that because you and I talked yesterday and I, I had such a great day. And when you sent me a note that we were playing together, I was excited. But I was all, you know, a little bit nervous because you're a good player and Derek, your partner, McGrath, is a good player. And But I, oh, yeah. I, I set out that day. Uh, my intention was to have the it was my last tournament of the year. And I was thrilled to have qualified, and I love playing with Charlie. But we were laughing, you, me, the four of us, because we, and because um, I should also mention that John and his partner are the defending champions. So when you get the draw, you know, you're always like, oh, it's just a shotgun start. Okay, Howard, you're on 14 with the rest of the dusters. But I saw that I was on the first hole. I'm like, oh. This is cool. And I thought it was because Fitz is the guy, but it was because you guys were the defending champions. Yeah. So we're sitting there on the first tee waiting for the horn to blow, and we were already laughing. We were making fun of stuff, and you and I were joking, and uh, it, was th- it was like that for most of the day. Yeah, there was a dark cloud for about an hour on the back nine, but that's okay. But it, I, I had such a good time, and... Um, you know, I really, really enjoyed it. And I got to watch you play. And, 
you know, again, I, I can't describe it, folks. When you see a guy who hits it as good as John does, and, and Charlie does as well. I mean, Derek and I are good players, but we're not like you two. And, like, it was a thrill for me. And I, I watched you hit a lot of good shots. I missed the whiff. But uh, I just enjoyed the day. I had It was such a great experience for me because lots of times in tournaments, I get a little tight. I can't quite release the club the way I want to. And you mentioned, like, from the very first swing I made, like, I felt good about how I swung it. I didn't feel good about how I scored that day, but I had a great time. And, and for me, the win was enjoying the day, playing in a pretty with a bunch of good guys, but also being able to release the club. Yeah, that you you played well. I was again. I haven't played with you. I think the last time we played together was at the national. Yeah, at their invitation years ago. Years yeah, ago. yeah. So I can't remember your golf game back then. Um, I remember your personality, and that's obviously what we love. It's not your golf, but well, that was the part know. I was really interested in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it was great. Even since the first hole, you're right. Like again, I, I when we talked yesterday, I'm like. There is a little bit of the nerve part. Even though you're playing a team event, it's the last event of the year. It's fun. We all want to win. And standing on that tee, and you were the first one to hit. So, again, in my mind, you're going to be the one holding the most uh, nerves to start. And you, you striped this thing right down the middle. And I think I made a comment about the pop off the face. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Every time every time I hit a, I hit a lot of good drives that day. And every time I did, he goes, oh, this is twist face technology. It was tailor-made. But I will tell you, I was really excited about the fact that a bunch of times, and even the last hole we played, it's like 218-yard par three, and I got four iron, and I ripped that thing. Like, like to me, that was a... a, a a win I, again the scoring was shit but uh i left there feeling pretty good and i got a chance to watch you i said to you on the phone yesterday i said man you hit a couple of shots tim that i just don't have you know one of them and, and strangely enough it was the way john plays around the green like it's something you still have what i would say tour level short game in every aspect you know, like I can hit, a, we all can hit shots out of the bunker. Give me an example, Howard. Give well, me I was going to say, like, I can hit a shot out of a bunker. You know, I hit a bunker shot on the second hole we played. You know, I got it up there 15, 8, eight 12 feet, whatever it was. But I said to John, I said, you hit a bunker shot, and it looks like the guy's on TV. It comes out, it spins a bit, and then releases. And I'm like, I saw him hit it, and I'm like, mm, okay, note to self. I should learn that because I, <laughs> I, I, I don't. And same with pitching around the green. He just has a. I don't know if it's just technique or whatever confidence, but and the fact that you're, you know, a, a very good putter, but also, you know, I don't know how you felt you hit the ball that day, but I didn't see you miss a lot of shots. You didn't miss a lot of swings. You didn't like neck fuck anything. I'm sorry for swearing, but you know what I mean? Like, so obviously you still have high level skills that haven't gone away after all these years. Well, you know, what's funny the last week and a half. I mean, it's the end of the season. I'm not playing as much. I'm not hitting balls. Um, I've been struggling. I've been awful. And leading into it, I even said to Derek, my partner, hey, <laughs> your back's going to be sore because you're going to carry me. But you want to know, watching uh, yourself and, and Charlie, with his tempo is good, mm-hmm. his posture is good. It, it, I only I, – I did hit a few bad shots, but nothing – I necked it on the one par four I should have. But uh, other than that, I thought I hit it fairly well. Yeah. And uh, I was happy with it considering it's been awful the last couple of weeks. So, uh, and I think that goes with, again, that's another thing. Like when you play with good, better players, you're going to play better. You're going to, you know, rise to the occasion. 
Um, and I think that that happened uh, on Monday. I, I played well. I mean, I think I made four birdies. My partner only made one, and that and then we made the double and a couple bogeys, so that hurt us. But uh, we were right there. We could have, and you guys too. You guys could have won that championship uh, on Monday easily. Well, yeah, so after our front nine, you, yeah. Go ahead, Timmy. I, I just want to ask a question before we let you go. And, and when you're talking about shots that professionals hit, I've always, when I've watched, um, particularly when I'm at PGA Tour events, I notice how much more speed professionals have through the ball when they're chipping and particularly pitching. Um, and I've always wanted to ask, what do you, you know, this is a kind of a technical question is it that you have more speed going into the ball you're hitting steeper what is it that you guys have that the even you know scratch handicap amateurs don't have in terms of that ability to strike a shorter shot like a chipper pitch so crisply crisply good question i think um like if i'm thinking of a pitch shot or you know somewhat of a flop shot at a rough i mean speed's the only way you're going to get through it And I think a lot of, even when I doubt myself or even amateur golfers, they get the D-cell because they're scared that thing's just going to rock it out of there. But really speed is what gets it. And even how we're talking about bunker shots, it's speed through the ball. And if you, again, I think, did we talk about this, Howard, this week? Like if you don't have the speed through the ball, there's a lot of shots you can't play, Mm -hmm. not just around the green, but even full shots. Yeah. And. It, it, but you, Tim, you're bang on. Like the speed is, I see other people. Uh, Gary Cowan, uh, you know, he's 83 years old. I get a chance to play with him quite a bit at Westmount, and just watching him at 84 and the speed he has around the greens in chipping, and he's got a few different techniques, and that's a whole other topic. It is impressive, and to have the confidence to make sure you can trust that that speed to go through, yeah. and not have that thing rocket. Uh, healed 60 yards over the green. It's pretty impressive. Well, like I said, it scares amateurs to death is that they're going to hit it past and thus the hands stop and it's the inverse, isn't it? You want to have, you want to speed it up. Yeah. So loose hands, speed it up. And that's why this game is so damn difficult. Well, I was going to say of all the, of all the shots I saw you hit and uh, there were lots of like John hits it with, you know, he moves the ball through the air with a lot of speed off the tee. Um, I, that was my takeaway. I was thinking about your game after. I was like, you know, that's why I, when I said to you yesterday, I should come to West Mountain because there's a couple shots I want to learn. Um, and and I'm like, and I like, am I? I'm a decent pitcher and chipper, but not. There was just a few shots you hit that I was like, and I'll tell you where the other one that was so good. There's a short par three. I think it's the twelfth hole we played, and there's four of us. Former tour player, the Canadian Mid-Am champ, Derek McGrath and I, and I'm the 100,000 years old. I'm the only one that hits the green, but Derek and and John are long on this hole. And it's a really little finicky little shot that now Derek hits it and he's a good amateur, but you hit it in a, with a, just a different confidence. Like it's one of those shots where it's short sided. So you've got to get through the ball. You've got to suck it up and hit enough power to get it to move only a little bit. And that was one of the shots. I was like, hmm, I don't think I have that shot. Um, did I hit it off the green? No, no, no. I don't think you did. Yeah. Did you hit it off the green? I, don't, I, I still can't. I can still remember your shot on the last hole. After you hit that thing all over the flag, you were prancing around like a peacock. <laughs> it, was, it was fantastic. I was. Because I, I think I was the only one to hit the green there. 
by dude, far. It was a full four iron. Like, dude, it I, was a good hole. it's the last hole we're playing. I still like, I don't, this doesn't mean anything, but I want to hit the green. Uh, listen, man, thank you so much for your time today. I just, uh, it's great catching up with you. And I mean, my favorite, uh, actually, my other favorite part was Derek, who's a very good player on one hole on the back nine. I just killed my drive. And, uh, John John went over to his partner's ball and he goes he yells at me across the ferry he goes hey Howard how old are you again I'm like what I said 62 and he turns to Derek and he goes you just got out driven by a 62 year old <laughs> I'm like nice partner oh gentlemen thank you I hey John this. so loved it man thanks for thank uh, you, doing John. this it's been wonderful yeah I really appreciate it and uh, you and I will catch up soon I'm going to come out and get a uh, a bunker lesson from you dude oh Thank you, guys. Take care, man. John Drury, uh, the 1997 Ontario Amateur winner and a uh, and a great guy. Thanks, man. Just remember I said there was going to be this awkward moment where you're not sure. Just go. Just go. Oh. Well, that was awesome. No, I knew you'd love this kid. He's so good. This and, kid. And oh, my God. He really is. He's so good, Tim. <laughs> like, we... I, I've... Like, I was nervous on the first tee because I was the first to hit. Uh, but I was already in a good space. Um, and I even said that to Charlie on the front nine. I said, you know, I've played in this event with him four times. And the other times I've been so uptight that I couldn't. I had no access. And I've had that feeling a few times this summer. And um, even in the front nine, we were we were doing pretty well. I mean, I wasn't making any birdies, but I was making lots of good pars, and I was, you know, I counted on a lot of holes. But mostly, I was thrilled with how I was letting it go, and uh, like really, like there's like you know we're playing the back tee, so there's some there was more than one par three over 210 yards, and so you know I was just kind of going along. But uh, John's such an easy guy to play with, you know. I mean, lots of guys that we both know that are high level players aren't easy to play with but he is no absolutely um there's so much good stuff that was in that conversation that i want to follow up with and um and so one of the things that you were talking about is you know releasing the club you know letting it go and you need and and you know you do that with different things but you know softer hands allowing your arms to rip through you create speed but that is a, such a hard thing for most amateurs to get their heads around. Even you know, even like someone who's like a, a eight handicap or, or or so, you know, you would think like a pretty good player. That whole idea of speed generation is just so hard to get your head around because subconsciously we're all scared that we're going to hit it too far. And Are you talking so about around the greens? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but also in the full game. Yeah. You've got to have speed. Yeah. That's where the, that's, you, if you're not generating speed, uh, whether it's a driver, you know, five iron, wedge, whatever, your ball striking is just not going to be that crisp. And so I was glad we were able to, uh, talk about that a little bit because I've, I've just always noticed that. I don't know why on TV it doesn't come through as much, but, when I watch players, at, whether it be you know at the Masters or or Canadian Opens or whatever, it's just that they hit those those shorter shots, whether it's a sixty yard pitch or you know a fifteen yard chip, just so much more crisply than the rest of us do. And it's the and I'm I'm glad I asked him, and it was about the speed. Well, where it comes from, I think, is 
you know, you back it up to the mental part of the game or whatever we call this, that it it's actually, you know, we've talked about it. it actually, fits uh, Simmons and I and you've talked about pre-acceptance and, yeah. and sending it and any word you want to use that connotes not steering it. Cause freedom? Freedom, exactly. And I, I played, you know, I don't know. I've lost track of how many tournament rounds I played this summer. But I, I had several tournaments, the amateur in particular, where I was steering it from the first swing to the last swing. And it's a, it's a shitty feeling. And, I, and even our, and I was going to say even, anyone listening has had that feeling where you just feel like, what's wrong with me today? Why can't I, you know, I go from hitting my seven iron in the high 160s to hitting at 150 because I'm afraid to let it go, afraid it'll go somewhere. And part of what I've tried to do the last couple of tournaments is, and especially this one, I, I wanted to have a good time and I wanted to enjoy the day. And part of that was I was going to get up. I got a pretty good partner. You know, I know he could, you know, he's going to pick me up on any hole I get in trouble with. So I just was able to just let it go. And and from tee to green, I was very, very good. I was around the greens. I wasn't as good as I'd like to be. Because I'll be honest with you. I think I said this to you before the show. I've had, I've been lucky the last few weeks, six weeks. I've played Weston a couple times. I've played uh, the National on Thursday. I've played uh, Oakdale a couple days ago. Those are just tough golf courses. Oh, yeah. And I'm not used to it anymore. I I used to be at one time, but they're just harder around the greens, you know, and they test your ability. And that's why I was so admiring his ability because he's still, he's got it. I don't. I mean, there Mm -hmm. were some pitch shots that I, you know, at at Glen Karen or Blue Springs, I might have gotten closer that I sort of went further than I wanted it to be. I'm just not used to the speed of it. But from tee to green, I was really, I got, I was happy with, you know, I'm, it was shitty that we didn't win because we could have, we were in a position. We were three under after the front nine and I didn't check the golf genius, but I guarantee we were leading or close to it because in the end, five under won it. So we were kind of on pace to be there or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. But even though we had a back nine meltdown, I just still loved it. Like, all the way through the back nine, I was still hitting it very good off the tee. For me, you know, obviously the shortest guy in the group, but I I was not holding back. And to me, that's where, for next year, I've been journaling about what I want from my next year is to remember that what gives me joy is not hanging on. And, And where that feeling is created is in the, you'll love this, is in being present in the group. Yep. Is And that's why, like, we were laughing on the first tee. And all my rounds lately that have been good, and I've had some really low ones, have all been in a, in a I'll use it again, in an affable state. And I got to remember that because that produces my best golf for sure. Yeah, it just makes, that just makes so much sense. Um, yeah, because when you're, say, affable, having fun, it means you're feeling relatively safe. Yes. You can, you're saying things. You're, you're able to, to give voice to something rather than hold it back and wonder, oh, what are they going to think if I say this? Um, yeah, that just makes a ton of sense. And there's really, if, if you people really think, you know, through their catalog of, uh, or memory banks of really great rounds, I bet you're having a good time. Yeah. I bet you there's lots of laughing and kidding and just, just general merriment. Um, it just makes sense you're going to feel that much looser. 
And what's interesting, and, and I've had some pretty interesting conversations with some clients this year about trying to get that sense of freedom, and can they do it without alcohol? And Or birdie juice, as people call it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Swing oil. Yeah, whatever, yeah. Swing oil. You know? Birdie juice. Love that. Yeah, and I've had some guys. We've had some pretty serious conversations about can you go to the first tee with just having just coffee and water versus three beers. Mm-hmm. And for a, a lot of guys, uh, they that's their way to cope with uh, dull and, and try and find that freedom. So it's a it's a very real thing, and and uh, our our, uh, uh, our recent guest Izzy Justice was talking with Carl a little bit with us, but he sent an email today about our consciousness around mental health. Yeah, I saw that. Very interesting. And, yeah, and that's one of the things about golf. I think that a lot of people, and that's why golf is such a great window to the soul or to to our character and the things we deal with. And um, that a lot of times with people, they struggle with that sense of being free, being authentic, being who they are. And so they hang on a lot to these things because, in essence, they're scared. And, and a lot of times they'll use alcohol as a crutch to escape that stuff. Well, what I told you before the show, and I, and I think it is, you know, if I were your... If I were your manager, I'd say that your superpower, your... <laughs> You know, like your, your the the value proposition that you bring. And I was there uh, at Rattlesnake for your guys. I just happened to be there. You guys were doing your last Quiet Mind, you know, group session. And, you know, I'm, I stopped by and, you know, say something foolish to the guys and then move on. But um, there's wisdom in that to yourself. <laughs> eh? No, I know. I, I You know, again, I, I don't want to intrude. But what I think you're the best thing about you as a coach from my standpoint is that very few other people I know have the background of having been in the mankind project for 20 years, which is all about men trying to reconcile how we feel about things because that's not a real masculine traditional trait, but golfers are faced with how we feel about things every minute or so you hit a shot. How do I feel like there's a, the guys in my group chat had found a hat that says, I hate golf. I hate golf. I hate golf, but it's got a reversible thing. You hit a good shot. I love golf. I love golf. I love golf. Right? (laughs) So it's the minute by minute. And it, you know, can be a roller coaster of emotions if you don't have a baseline. And that's kind of the raison d'etre of our show of seven years of trying to get a, a good baseline. You know, the Kathy Wood um, analogy of, you know, are you in the main floor of your house for the round? Or are you in the basement in the doldrums? Or are you in the attic when everything is good? Or the thing that I say about, can, what's your internal thermostat like? And I can tell you, like on Monday, mine was pretty good all the way through that round even though we struggled on the back i wasn't personally you know i felt bad for charlie and i because i feel like i let him down on a couple holes i missed a couple short putts but i didn't think oh i hate myself i'm no good putter you know like i said the the reason i was excited about how i played the last hole because that was a, a a a snapshot of my mental state at that point we're, we're not going to win it, but I wanted to, I still wanted to make a good swing and I let that thing go. Like for me to hit a four iron up in the air is good. These kids, that's the one thing I noticed the difference between like me and John and Charlie. Oh yeah. Is they just hit the ball so much higher than we do 
But in that particular occasion, I got it up like a grown person and whatever. And uh, so that's what I think you bring to the table. And I think the benefit from Quiet Mind and and all your your, uh, Golfist Life groups, the benefit for O'Connor, I'm giving a a commercial for Tim now, is that he understands – I'm talking about you like you're not here. Tim understands men in particular and how we react to things and how we – can use things like alcohol and other elements to to get through the day and golf's no different you know that's why a lot of times guys you know they give up i I heard a story of somebody that you know and won't say who it is but i heard a story didn't he had literally played two holes of the club championship this year and then quit like that's and that's a grown man with children and of mortgage and you know retirement savings (laughs) fucking quits a meaningless golf tournament yeah well that's some crazy yeah. shit tim oh exactly and, and, and thank you for the kind words i and i, I appreciate well it's true but you're 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 bang on in terms of that's a part of the game i think a lot of us don't recognize is that in so many ways we can just let what happens with this golf ball just play havoc with ourselves and the and and it so connects with with our stories of our about ourselves our belief systems and and I know it's a very dramatic word but all the you know the wounds right back to kids and it's and it's having an awareness that oh this is just fucking golf mm-hmm, exactly it doesn't mean I'm gonna die here or that my dad is metaphorically gonna take me out to the woodshed yeah or that. I've suddenly lost all my value because I'm, you know, four over after two holes of the club C. Boy, oh boy, but that's hard. And what you made a really interesting uh, reference to baseline. And I think a lot of people don't understand what that is. And that, in that, so, and here's, a, I think, a very cool way to understand it. And of course, <laughs> uh, I got this from Fred Shoemaker. Um, it, he says a really interesting way to understand what your baseline say of freedom, as we've been discussing is put a put a ball an inch away from the hole and put it in. And you're going to say, what did you feel? And most people say, well, nothing. I felt completely relaxed. He goes, that's your baseline. Yeah. Zero tension, zero thought, just doing it. And then what you do is you move the ball, say, six inches from the hole, put it in. What did you feel there? 24. And then they're going to get to a point, and I've, I've witnessed this almost every time I've done this exercise, you get someone to maybe... You know, three feet, three and a half feet, and they go, and then they go. They just take a second longer. <laughs> That's right. Butt. Little you know, what tension. There? Yeah. What happened there? And they went. Well, I thought. Well, what if I miss this? Oh, better not decel. Whatever mm-hmm. it is. And then we come back to what's the baseline? And that baseline was at what at one inch, six inches. Like no tension, and and that's what we mean by baseline, and that's a, a a nice reference point for people to have in terms of when golf starts to go off the rails a bit. Well, you've experienced baseline before, mm-hmm. and and just to kind of bring that back into your awareness, it can really be a help. Well, I think the reason that a lot of us can't remember our baseline feeling is because we think. I used to think this, that in order to play well, I had to be in a state of intense, you know, tension and, you know, concentration and. Exactly. And your Hogan-esque bubble. Right. And, and, you know, that's really not. 
you know, really worked for me in a lot of ways. I mean, it hasn't, it hasn't, it has in terms of my ability to practice, you know, the day that you guys were out there, I got there at 1230. I didn't leave till 430. And, you know, I do it because it gives me joy, but also, you know, it's kind of a cautionary tale. Like if you want to be good at this game, it takes some commitment and not everyone, you know, not everyone has the time that I do or the can't not everyone can stand it like it's funny there's a guy at the back of the range here at rattle who's a friend of mine i've known him for years through sean casey named ben ferguson former tour player oh and, yeah and great ben, teacher great teacher great teacher and uh ben was trying to joke with me because i went through three of his students while standing there he gave three different lessons he was on his I, so two lessons full hours and then he was starting the third lesson i said i'm, I'm done he goes really already like you know it, it takes you know, I, I spent two two hours of that just chipping and putting. Not well, everyone. Yeah, well, I sort of interject. No, that's fine. Just, that's why I asked John about the time thing. Yeah. He was saying about he didn't give himself enough time. And that's part of what golf requires. It's just such a game that takes time. My goodness. Of, of developing your skill and, and uh, mentally, physically more aware in so many different ways. I mean, goodness gracious. Um, I don't know. How many times do you play a week these days? What, five days a week? No. Um, I would play probably on average. I would actually golf 18 holes four times a week. Three or four times, depending on a tournament week. And you and, and then, so and then practice every day. Yeah, every day? Every, every day I have a golf club in my hand hitting golf balls. And and so that's the kind of my point is the time it takes. So you're a plus handicap. Uh, these well, what's it take to be a plus handicap? What you just described. And so I think in many ways, what Fawcett has brought to us an understanding, you know that that or reaffirming, if you will, that from eight feet, PGA Tour professionals make fifty percent of their putts. That gives us some perspective on what we around our expectations. No, hundred percent. So for our listeners, I think if you're trying to become a better, improve your game, you need to have some perspective of what it takes. And not only what it takes, but and what... give yourself some slack. And what Jury said there about... A sorry, job, a family. Yeah, what, well, that's what I was going to say. What he said about that, like he, he came back from the tour and then, you know, life kind of... All of a sudden you've got kids, a mortgage, and you've got to have a certain income coming in. But also what he said about, you know... The, the story that he was told about how much handicap you can shave off year to year. So if you're a 24, I, I, you can shave off more than three in a year. But once you get down to single digits, and I mean, once you're a nine going to a six, that's a good solid. You know, that could be done maybe in a season. But once you're under five, you're not getting to scratch unless you quit your job. And like, you know what I mean? Like, unless you've yeah. got an uncommon amount of time. Because, again, just watching him. And I, I, the funny thing is, Fitzsimmons is a better golfer right now than John Drury. But I'm used to seeing Charlie. You know, I, I know how he hits the ball. But I watched John that day because I, I, I wanted to see how he handled certain situations. And, you know, he, he has a lifetime of being a, a great golfer. You know, and I didn't see him. He, like I, that one thing he was talking about, he whiffed a shot under the tree. I never saw it. So... I didn't really see him hit any bad shots. And I'm saying from a guy who hits it pretty good's perspective, I never see him miss. A, he didn't miss anything that I saw. And what does it take to do that? I mean, well, people listening, we've given you seven years of, of things you might use to get from a 16 to a 12. 
But beyond that, like it just just depends on how much you can give to this, yeah. and what you're hey, also thing, what you're willing to sacrifice. Exactly. But one thing I wanted to hit on before we go um, is the what John talked about the change in your thinking. Yes. If you want to go from say a nineteen to a fifteen. You have to think like a 15. And if you want to go from a 9 to a 6, you got to think like a 6. And I'll give a bit of context to this. I've been thinking about this in terms of my own game. So I've been, I, I've, I'm playing the best golf of my life these days. I mean, what an amazing game. At 65, I'm playing the best golf of my life. Um, but the thing that I've noticed is that in, in, in trying to you know, get better at this game is that that change in thinking that has to happen. And, and the quick story I'll give is I was playing a couple weeks ago, uh, uh, par four, hit into a bunker. The other guy I was playing with, who's a three, he's in a bunker too. But I'm not sure I can get over the lip. So I, I hit it out, and then it's a blue f- flag, black back flag. So I don't want to overshoot the green, but I choose I think a conservative really conservative club and I end up with about a 50 foot shot so I'm on in three and three whack and make a double and I was so pissed and I didn't reset after that shot after that double and I hit my drive so far right in 20 years at Blue Springs I've never hit it that far right <laughs> the whole reason I'm telling this story is that as I reflected on it as I journaled about it the next day I went you know what you've got to start playing with a little bit more aggression You've got to start going for it a little bit more. So rather than than maybe just making sure you get out of the bunker, uh, you know, take a shot at it because it'll, it'll usually get out. And rather than making sure you hit the middle of the green, fire at that flag, you know, within reason. Yeah. So that was that's what I was thinking about in terms of starting to think like a three rather than think like a five or a six. So I don't know. That was a long story. No, I know it wasn't. Uh, I, I get it. And, and what I, the only thing I would say about it is, you know, the fact that you three putted from fifty feet. You know, from a decade perspective, the reason that you know, sure, it, it, it would bug me, but I don't know that it would bug me to the point. Yeah, the double would bug me, but three well, putting bug me that I I was the whole thing bugged you that you were cautious going at that blue flag, right? Not, you know, no, silly. I know what you mean. But the 50-footer, like anyone listening, has, has heard me say, if you, you're, you're going to three-putt. We're all going to three-putt most of the time. I'll tell you the hardest thing that you describe, and I, it happens to me too, is when I've been in a situation where I've done that, where I've had to splash out of a bunker, I can't go to the green, and then I'm just now playing for bogey, and I hit it 45 feet short, but I don't take the kind of time or care or whatever to make right. sure I two-putt that or give myself the best chance to two-putt it because I still want to make five more than six you know what i mean i totally get that because that's one of those times where i think and i've thought about this too where why is it that we will walk around and pace around an 18 footer for birdie but maybe if it's for bogey we don't give it the same amount of time because usually it's at the end of a couple of shitty shots yeah and now we just want to get this hole over with when you know, maybe you won't make that bogey, but what will happen to a lot of players listening is they'll have a, a long putt for bogey and they'll three putt that and there's the triple. Yeah. They won't give that a t- because who wants to make a, a, a again, a double's better than, uh, you know, a triple. Anyway. Um, hey, I just want, so just before we go, I just, but that's one key thing I learned from you this year hugely uh, was regardless whether it's for birdie or for double, 
take the time it requires. But did you ever find yourself thinking about this in terms of as you were taking your game, you know, from, say, a four to a two to scratch to plus, that there was a a change in your thinking in, in a part of the game that you kind of got, I need to think this way for me to be a scratch or a plus? Well, I mean, the short answer is, you know, in the spring of last year, I was a 1.9 and I finished as a zero. And all, and it was all because of the the change in, you know, the way, the, the, and I don't want to say decade, but um, what the biggest takeaway for, for me from decade was handling my expectations. Mm. And yeah. knowing that, you know, when you're out of position on a hole, that trying to make a par from a rough spot is what makes is what gives you doubles. So, you know, I didn't do it. I did change. I yeah. The answer is yes. Obviously, the my change in thinking was, you know, I know what a good shot is now. And you know, on those on those holes on Monday where they were really long, there was a 585 yard par five, and I smoked my drive. But so what? I still had. 310 yards to the crane you know <laughs> like so i rather and i laid up listen the other day i laid up on a par four um i was playing on my home course on sunday it was cold and i was it was it's a long par four and it was like 8 30 on sunday morning and i was four layers and and i had a 225 yards to the green on a par four 465 yard par four and um i was going to go get my three wood and i looked up ahead and i'm like all I can do is hit it in one of those two bunkers. Exactly. I'm not going to do that. So I hit six iron, laid up, made a five, and kind of walked off the green going, well, no harm, no foul. Exactly. So that's the change in thinking for me is that I could stand there and maybe hit three wood and once out of 50 times get it somewhere near or on the green. But the other times we're, we're all going to be chaos. And I think that probably more than anything is how... I learned to mitigate some of the damage versus, you know, you, like in a round of golf with you and I, you would hit very many good shots, lots and lots of them. And the only difference in our handicaps is the quality of the shots that don't, you're less than good shots. My right. less than good shots are, is the only difference. Your good shots are as good as mine, but your less than good shots will get you the 78 where i'll shoot 74 75 and that's really the only difference yeah all right folks well uh you know the two grandpas get tired after an hour (laughs) (laughs) i got a nap in my future oh yeah i'm gonna go play men's (laughs) night i have a big decision today whether i should walk or ride because i get i get sleepy on the back nine it's such a beautiful day won't won't that inspire yes i'm wearing shorts i got shorts on i'm wearing shorts today me too. Me too. On uh, October the fifth. Yeah, that's what I said on Monday. As we with record these, this, I said that these guys on Monday. Every time I'd hit one up in the air, I go, "Oh, look, Grandpa got it up in the air." But uh, yeah, anyways, thanks very much to John Drury. What a, I knew he, I knew he'd be a great guest for us. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, was we'll great. see everyone. Thanks again to JW Apparel. Uh, this is one of my favorite things I've ever owned from them. This is like not only a sweater; it's like a jacket inside the sweater. It's keeping me warm. Uh, thanks to NeuroPeak Pro and, of course, TaylorMadeGolf.ca. Uh, Coach Tim, you can uh, check out all things O'Connor at O'ConnorGolf.ca. And if you want more of this nonsense from me Monday through Thursday, you can check me out at HumbleAndFred.com. All right, everyone. See you next week. I mean, two weeks. You feel all right when you hear the music.